I'd like to begin with a really beautiful piece of news um, for Temenos and its founder, Kathleen Rain. Tomorrow she receives the gold medal for poetry from the Queen, which is absolutely marvellous. It's been given to very few people, so it's a very nice thing to celebrate tonight. Uh, I just hope that my talk will be worthy of it. But um, I just want to let everybody know, um, and, and sorry, Kathleen, Kathleen's not here herself tonight, but next time she is, it might be quite nice for people to say how pleased they are. Somebody who's worked as hard as she has for tradition and poetry, it's a, it's a really marvellous thing. Um, tonight, I rather, in a moment of weakness, gave the title that I would speak about the geometry of the Timaeus. What happens if you give somebody a title three months in advance, the time comes to give the lecture and you start looking at the Timaeus and thinking, good God, I know nothing about it, help. Um, so, what luckily one does, one reads the <coughs> first part of the Timaeus and one remembers Socrates when he asks Timaeus to speak, says, um, don't start speaking until you have at least evoked the gods. So Timaeus said, yes, I shall do that, which is the custom, and anybody who doesn't do that will be totally out of their minds, and I'm going to evoke all the gods and all the goddesses as well, um, hoping what I have to say will please them. Now, just in case that sounds like some sort of paganism to some people, it's good to remember that when Plato uses the word gods and goddesses, he is also talking about the permanent principles in the universe. Now, of course, he would never use phrases like the permanent principles in the universe because that would be too abstract for many people. It's rather like earth, air, fire, and water. Absolutely everybody knows what earth, air, and fire, and water are. And if you use the contemporary scientific terms for those things, which are exactly the same four things, which is solid state, liquid state, gaseous state, and state of radiation, not everybody necessarily falls into what you're talking about. So traditional wisdom will always use a language which is available to everybody. It's, a, it's available to the most um, simple mind, in the best sense of the word, to the intellectual. And a society always gets into great dangers when the intellectuals start using terms which the ordinary person can't understand, which is very typical of our own times. As everybody knows, when Einstein first brought out his theory of relativity and the way in which the cosmos was constructed, something like only 12 people were known to be able to understand it. Then what happened was, it was like a pack of cards of resignations, a pack of cards syndrome that will fall down, of resignations of the professors of physics because they'd all been hanging on to Newton. Um, well, what's nice about Timaeus is that Timaeus says very early on in this dialogue, he virtually says anyway, well, he warns people who become arrogant about the way in which they explain how the universe is made. He said, we can only, as human minds, we can only ever give a likely story. We can only talk about probabilities. Anybody who presumes to talk more than that is in great danger of overstepping their acknowledgement of their own humanness. Well, we all know how modern physics has gone. One person comes along trying to get the Nobel Prize after the other one to try and completely refute the previous uh, construction of the universe. At the moment, we're all into big bangs, which somebody has sort of made a very nice observation. It's probably the most revealing theory of the state of the modern Western mind psyche that we can have. Um, the common man would see the Big Bang as anything but a cosmic origin, but we won't go into that. The point about it being that somebody also observed, rather wittily, nobody was there to hear it. <laughs> anyway, having said all that, a lot of what I'm going to say will be quite strange in many ways to, to the modern mind, and 
It's also extremely important to remember that the tradition coming from Platonism is that everything which is positive, everything which is put forward, should be thought about on, if possible, four different levels of meaning. That's something else we're, we're not um, in the habit of doing. Having said that the ordinary mind can grasp it immediately, those who want to get more deeply into what Plato is talking about have to make, try to make, anyway, the move to understand what he's saying on four levels. And the fourth level is always the level of how does it unify all the previous knowledge that you know. The ultimate level is always the one of simplicity and unification. Having said that, what I'm going to do is to sort of try to evoke in the first... Actually, I think, do I leave this on or do I put it down? I leave it on, right? I might set myself alight, so I'm going to turn it and ease it back a little. And the other thing I'd quite like to put forward to people who, um, having said that about the four levels of meaning, I'd like to just remind everybody who are most likely to miss one of the most significant things about the Timaeus are the very first words spoken. And somebody here must have been reading the Timaeus recently. What are they? Of course, nobody's going to admit they've been reading the Timaeus recently. Do anybody know what the first words of the Timaeus are? They sum up the whole thing. One, two, three, where is the fourth? Brilliant. One, two, three, where is the fourth? Of course, it then goes on, the fourth turns out that you have a human cladding, but it is actually the cosmology itself. It is the detractors of, 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 of Pythagoras, and therefore all Pythagoreans who would read such a document know exactly what Plato was evoking. The tradition is that Timaeus himself was a Pythagorean, although it's never explicitly stated, and I don't think even Pythagoras is mentioned in the dialogue, or is he for somebody else? I don't think he has now. So, one, two, three, where is the fourth? Of course, the fourth, therefore, means where is the solution which unites one, two, and three. The mystery is that if we're talking about beginnings, the beginning is unitary. Nobody would suggest the beginning wasn't unitary. It then divides into two, becomes three, and the suggestion is the fourth can actually show how it returns back to unity again, I suggest. Right, what I'm going to do, I'm going to show a set of images, mainly to evoke the curious inherent quality all of us have, and that is why are we in any way interested in origins? Why should any of us be interested in origins? Why should it bother us at all? Why should it be something we should concern ourselves about? And yet we all hang on to our birthdays. Why not? And we all tend to celebrate our own origins, and often we get quite caught up in what are our origins in terms of ancestral and then sometimes we say, well, what are the origins of even the language one's speaking? What are the origins of the need to communicate? So it's, it's a very fascinating thing. And the word origin has a direct connection as a word to the, to the direction of the east, which is where the sun rises. Because the rising of the sun is the rising of consciousness, the rising of light, the rising of understanding. So the genesis of a day, the rising and completion of a day, all these things are built in to the prompts, one might say, that the natural world has to, for the human mind to be directed towards the supernatural world, that which is the cause and how it results. Now, if I use words like supernatural, and some people don't like the word supernatural, 
don't let it bother you, just forget it. Okay, so I'm going to start off with some images. I'd like the first image on here. If somebody could turn the two lights on, that would be a help. <coughs> the images that I'm going to show, they have to be personal, but they're images to evoke what moments all of us have in our lives when we have looked at a scene and the question has arisen, what caused this? What is the secret behind this? What is the origin of this amazing um, experience, almost a wordless experience, which we can't describe. And in fact, one of the most remarkable things about beauty as a quality is that it is stunning. Beauty is, by its nature, stunning. It stuns the mind. It's part of the uh, importance of beauty, that it stills the mind or stuns the mind. And for a few moments, one can actually find oneself in a completely different state of appreciation of one's relationship to what it is one is looking at. And in fact, as the Chinese would say, um, the basis of cosmology is actually a state of non-separation between yourself and that what it is that you're experiencing or viewing. That is what cosmology is traditionally in China, the non-separation. Of course, we in the modern world, the modern Western world, have taken such a stand of separation that we have made the assumption that we are something different from the universe and we are capable of observing it and calculating it and passing judgment on it. But that's just part of the way things are. Next slide over there, please. I'm just going to show a series of only evocative visual images and the reason I'm showing these is because I'm old sum these up with a, with a quotation from Plato, and that is we see things and they strike us as deeply mysterious, and we begin to realize how little we actually know about the why and wherefore of the world we're in, although we like to think we're immensely sophisticated. And there are some people who like to publish um, their findings about looking at something and saying, oh, we're just about to sum up everything now, we've got a theory which sums up everything. Well, that's the best description of death I've ever heard. Nevertheless, next one here. Uh, that's the wrong way. <laughs> One of the very interesting observations we can all make is that if people are nervous of somebody talking about the invisible worlds, and of course that can be misused, air and light are invisible. They become visible, and dramatically so, when the liquid world actually, through evaporation, becomes moisture and de demonstrates the shape of air because the moisture particles are sitting in the air and becoming cloud. But when you see, this is one of the um, third highest mountains in the state of Colorado in America, you begin to see the unbelievable scale that sometimes one is fortunate to see in clouds. They're the most amazingly dramatic beings and really quite terrifying in certain circumstances. Next one over there. And again, the solid state, or Earth, in this case is a mountain. This mountain happens to be behind me when I'm photographing this picture here. And it is 14,000 feet up. And it's a very beautiful demonstration of life clinging as high as it can until it hasn't got enough oxygen or soil. It's what's called the timber line. And then beyond that, only, only the bare rock can survive. And so we have another isolation of a fundamental element. Now, in this particular case, <coughs> all the elements are present in all the pictures I'm showing, but because of the invisibility of air and the invisibility of light, 
um, we tend to have to focus on that which is made of solid state, of earth, or of water. They are the two elements which we can appreciate, which address themselves the senses. The other two we, we get by implication. Next one here. That's one possible view of a mountain. Many people have had their metanoia by looking at a mountain, and many others may have found a, a very tiny, this is something you can hold in your hand, a very tiny piece of the solid state. This is a pyrite crystal. Um, that in itself can cause an amazing state of wonderment in the human mind. How did that come about? And of course, for those who are sophisticated about crystallography, they know that this pyrite crystal is heading towards, not actually being a regular one, but heading towards being a dodecahedron, which is, in fact, a symmetry which does not occur in, in crystalline state. Not a perfect, regular dodecahedron that requires the one does. That is, that is a figure which is made up of 12 pentagonal faces. They're never quite regular. But when you have one of these in your hand, which is very nearly regular, it has an incredible effect on one. One realizes that there are billions, billions upon billions of tiny little atoms which have got together and, and remained in order to get to this size. This is the thing that, that, that we have to have a sense of reverence for the Greeks who even thought up the idea of atomism. An amazing concept that things which are way beyond visibility could actually build up to become visible. And therefore, even, even the fact that the Greeks conceived of atomism is very strange. It's even more strange, one might say, that exactly at the same time as Democritus was conceiving of atomism, there was another philosopher in India called Kanada, who also conceived of atomism. There was another philosopher, a contemporary one, in China called Moti, who also put forward a theory of atomism, all at the same period. And that in itself is very, very interesting when people have theories about the time being right for an idea to arrive in the human mind. They all had slightly different ways of doing it. Canada's theory was that atoms were rather like um, little balls of cotton wool, and they related that way. Moti, rather like Democritus, talked about the atoms as being little spheres that fitted together like hard things which touched each other. But it's fascinating that they all came up at the same time. Plato, in fact, has often been called an atomist, but as I hope to demonstrate, he was much more clever than ever to allow his language to be um, treated merely, literally, although he does talk about atoms. Next one over there. Here you have, again, earth, air, fire, and water. And all we see is the this wonderful rhythmic throb of, of, of the beach where the waves come and go. We see the solid state with the sand or pebbles, we see the water, and we know between our eye and that is the air, and we know we couldn't see it without the light. But many of us have actually stood watching this rhythm of water on the sand and realized how little we really could can explain how water behaves correctly and how the solid state behaves correctly. Water remains in the liquid state and behaves exactly as it should, and so does the solid state. And why this should be so, who can explain? <coughs> you have a reason for being late, sir. <laughs> he got lost. He got lost. <laughs> uh, like the speaker. Uh, no, not quite. Not right. <laughs> Next one here. And 
in a sense, moving from that to the organic world, it's almost much too easy to show beautiful pictures of symmetrical flowers and, and the symmetry and mathematics behind growth. But it's also one of the most beautiful things which Plato talks about a great deal in the beginning of Timaeus. What is the difference between that which is constantly becoming, but never is, and that which always is, and is never becoming? Now, we have to think about these things very deeply when, when very simple phrases are put to us like that. But here is the uh, image of the cyclicity of life. That whatever life is, it, it, there's a certain point where it evacuates the vehicle that, it, that it's been inhabiting, which is the material of this. This is now, inverted commas, dead. And it's going to go back down and be much. This is green and very much alive. So that mysterious thing of what life is, but what we do know is that life is circulating the four elements. In the same way that we are carrying bodies which are only seven years old. I know Dick would never admit to that, but we are a bit more than that, aren't we, Dick? And the point is that if somebody asks your age, you give an age, but in fact, there are very, very few highly specialized cells in your body which are the age which you call yourself. We're all basically seven years old. Next one over there. So that brings us to the great mystery, and that is the mystery of our relationship to the sun. Why that's a mystery is that the only way in which, at a very literal level, we can explain the existence of life on the planet is because the planet is exactly the correct proportional distance from the sun. And it has... The, the major magic of the planet Earth is the quality, which is totally undramatic, but the quality called warmth. Warmth. Heat and cold abound in the universe. And they're dramatically hot, like the sun, and they're dramatically cold, like in Saturn. The air itself is frozen into crystals. But on the Earth, we have warmth. And because we've got warmth, we can have water in this state, and we can have ice, and we can have vapor, which is just covering the sun a little bit there. It's the only place in our solar system where these things happen. Of course, there are millions of possible places in the rest of the universe. Right, next one here. I'm now going to go into a quotation from the Timaeus. And just in case it can't be read from the back, I'll read it out. Very, very important part. It's, it's, it's quite some way in the book, but... And I'm, I'm just going to adapt it slightly. Sight, in my opinion, is the source of the greatest benefit to us. For had we never seen the stars and the sun and the heaven none of the words which we have spoken about the universe would ever have been uttered. But now the sight of day and night and the months and the revolutions of the years have created number. What he means by that is created number in the consciousness of the person seeing it. And have given us a conception of time, again aroused in the human mind what, the question of what is time, and the power of inquiring about the nature of the universe. And from this source we have derived philosophy. Just in case people have all sorts of different meanings to the word philosophy, it's good to remember, in fact, the tradition has it that Pythagoras invented the word philosophy, and it, it comes from two Greek words, philo and sophie. Philo is love of, and sophie is wisdom. Than which no greater good was ever, was, or will be given by the gods to mortal man. This is the greatest boon of sight. And then he goes on to actually talk about something which is very important here indeed, what sight is primarily for and why we should look at the heavens, why we should be interested in astronomy, because one has to remember that, that Timaeus was given the first chance to speak at this meeting because he was an astronomer, or he studied the cosmos. 
God invented and gave us sight to the end that we might behold the courses of intelligence, the courses of intelligence in the heaven. Plato takes it for granted we are in a living, intelligent universe, quite as in opposition to a materialist view that we live in a dead universe and we're the only things which are alive. That we might behold the courses of intelligence in the heaven and apply them to the courses of our own intelligence. Very deep implications here, which are akin to them, the unperturbed to the perturbed, and that learning that we partake of the natural truth. In other words, what by understanding and the reason for studying the cosmos is to try and understand how we move inside ourselves. And the word move, to the Greek, meant the presence of soul. The evidence of movement was evidence of soul and psyche. Next one there, please. Timaeus' dialogue was these four people met, and some of you will correct me if I'm wrong, I think I'm right in saying they met on a day of the celebration of Athena, whose temple we still see, the Parthenon, overlooking Athens. And Athens is a city, of course, is dedicated to Athena. So just to put one, it's not difficult if you go to Athens. It is difficult if you stay down amongst the shops because you're drowned in pollution and cars and God knows what. But once you manage to climb a little bit up into the Acropolis, it's not difficult to find a sense of timelessness about the Greek civilization. And as Plato said and many others, that Athens was a divinely chosen city and would give great gifts and benefits to mankind forever, which is very difficult to deny. Um, I think Wittgenstein it was who said that the Platonic dialogues, every other piece of philosophy that's happened since, are only footnotes to Platonic dialogues. Now what also tradition has it is that Platonic dialogues are not to be thought of as being or originating in Plato as an individual. Plato would have been very against that. And how do we know he'd be against that? Because he never appears in his dialogues. He never uses the first person. It's not I speaking. It's not Plato speaking. Plato always is a fly on the wall in his dialogues. And tradition has it, and that's why Timaeus is meant to be a Pythagorean. Tradition has it that he was just merely recording. In fact, some people even say he was, it was a period in history where he was given permission to record an oral tradition, which meant, went back many thousands of years. Some allusions I shall make to as the talk goes on. Next one. Now, the other interesting thing is that, that just at a very simple level, I've shown this slide before to the students, um, that decoration or ornamentation or adornment to Greek architecture is based on certain themes. That is, water, there are much better drawings, I feel, than this one. This comes from Serlot's Dictionary of Symbols. But um, water is represented this way, earth, I mean, air basically this way, fire in this form, and earth in this form. Now, what it meant was, and I shall show the commentary, it's a very interesting commentary on this side because it actually touches on why Timaeus was written. And under the heading of ornamentation in Serlot's Dictionary, it says, Ornamentation, this is a symbol of cosmic activity. Of course, activity again means soul. Of development in space and of the way out of chaos. It's interesting how fashionable chaos theory is at the moment. Goes with big bangs, I think. Chaos being denoted by blind matter. Interestingly enough, Plato takes it for granted that materiality was pre-existent before God decided to order it. He does not put forward the theory of creation starting from nothing. 
Ornamentation by virtue of graduated motifs is its progressive reconciliation which signifies the gradual stages in the evolutory development of the universe. These are developments in the universe. But in fact, curiously enough, this is not quite right because this should come first, that second, that third, and that last. The principal elements in ornamentation are the spiral, the sigma, the cross, waves, zigzag. All these are discussed in the private places in the book. Some of the basic principles behind these ornamental motives concern graphic and spatial symbolism, and that's what we have here. So to understand ornamentation and the, the philosophical basis of ornamentation is that it's not something you merely do just for fun because you like it, and, and of course you could do it that way as well, but in most traditions there is a philosophical basis for it. They are all reminders in the true sense of the word remind. They're reminders of the order of the universe, of the, the fact that the universe is ordered. Next one here. So, Critias is the speaker and says, I'm taking these slices out of the book, consider now, Socrates, the order of the feast as we've arranged it. Seeing that Timaeus is our best astronomer, this is the qualification for him to speak, and has made it his special task to learn about the nature of the universe, it seems good that he should speak first, beginning with the origin of the cosmos and ending with the generation of mankind. I can only in one evening talk about really two quite small aspects of the Timaeus, and as I say, when I was doing my research to do this talk, I realized how pathetically ignorant I was, and every time I read the Timaeus, I get more and more ignorant. Um, but I don't recommend that. That is not a recommendation not to read the Timaeus. In fact, it's part of how it should be, that each time you read it, you realize there's more and more and more in it. And therefore, it's quite difficult to actually propound anything without the dangers of qualification. So, but what we, we heard earlier was, it's the movement, because of sight, as Plato as Timaeus says later in the dialogue, because of sight, we study the heavens so that we can align the intelligence within ourselves. And that is why uh, Timaeus has this qualification, because by studying the universe, he's been studying the nature of intelligence in himself. Not, as we might say, somebody who's just vaguely a stargazer. Next one here. And here again, the very important thing, the two things I've underlined here, that what Timaeus makes absolutely fundamental, he makes it time and time again, he, he, he in a sense, is about 3,000 years before his time, but he wouldn't think that way, one shouldn't really say that, but he, he actually put forward what is now scientifically kosher or acceptable, and that is that we can only talk about probability. Rather, we should be contented with the furniture council of inferiors and unlikelihood, and it's inferiors and none which is important. Otherwise, one could just say, well, I'm, I think it might be like this, I think it might be like that. Yeah. And the word likelihood is a very important word. It's a better word than probability, in fact, because likelihood means it is like, has a likeness to something else in a pre-material state. Remembering that both I who speak and you who judge are but human creatures. It becomes so that it becomes us to accept the likely account of these matters and forbear to search beyond it. In other words, warning human beings and any human beings, whether one's speaking or one's uh, judging or assessing, that there are limits to human knowledge, which is not the mark of the 20th century, sadly. Next one here. And I get another terribly important part of the Timaeus, and it comes through again, again, and again. And although Timaeus talks about great details of how, first of all, the soul is created and then the bodies are created in the universe. 
that it is always to be considered to be not only living, which it says here, but we shall affirm that the cosmos, more than anything else, or what else like, resembles most closely that living creature of which all other living creatures severally and generically are portions. It's living and it's one. Constant reference to the unity and, and, and oneness of the universe. Although he says other people may have other opinions, and that's fine, but we have the opinion and we hold by it that the universe is ultimately one. Of course, the word universe means one. You won't win gold medals if you win that one. Just checking if it's still there, Vic. Right, so this is also to do with uh, why I particularly wanted to emphasize that was because another very fashionable theory at the moment, and I say fashionable because we tend, unfortunately, to go in, in, in fashion waves with how people explain the universe today in modern empirical science terms, is the rediscovery by um, dear James Lovelock that maybe the Earth is living. Well, the point is that Plato took it for absolutely granted. It couldn't be anything else, and it takes 2,000 years to forget it, and somebody you know, rediscover it again. And the basis of Lovelock's um, thesis that the Earth is living is that it's actually, he's demonstrated by his calculations, the Earth has monitored its own temperature over millions of years and therefore made life possible. That's, if, if I can encapsulate James Lovelock's, but that, the Gaia theory is that the Earth is alive. But it's not new. And again, this is just to emphasize the unity. This is actually the, the, the final statement that Mayer's this world has become a visible, living creature, embracing all that, all that are visible and an image of the intelligible. The intelligible means that which we appreciate with our mind. It is an outer image, it is an exteriorization of that which is intelligence. A perceptible God, supreme in greatness and excellence and beauty and perfection, this heaven single and in its kind, single of its kind and one. So there's a double statement about unity going on here. Of course, if you want to get into those philosophers who've come since Plato, in fact, the Muslim philosopher Ibn Arabi was actually called the son of Plato, Ibn Flatun, because he went into incredible depth. The words used for unity and oneness and uniqueness and all the different qualities and the different meanings to those ways of appreciating unity. So, one of the most important images to Timaeus is the circle. We see the circle as something which is static and eternal if we look at it just like we are on the screen. But if we allow our eye to move around it, as the compass had to do to draw it, then he says, this is the moving image of eternity. Time is the moving image of eternity. So if we travel around it, we are partaking of time. If we take it frozen, as it is on the screen, then it's eternity. If I can make it gross simplicity. So these, the circulation of time, because we live in a world of time, but we come from a world of eternity. This is the thesis. We all know that there's time factor, there's a time to what I'm saying, there's a time to this lecture, there's a time span for everybody's life in this room. But there's also a grand picture of our lives. A total, sometimes called a gestalt. Good word in German. Next one. Now this will stretch some people's credibility, but forgive me, uh, in a terminal lecture we're allowed to do that. One of the most incredible things about the, the, the ancient Greek civilization was it did not have abstract numerals. How about that? It did not have numbers that you could write down. And yet the great mathematicians, from Pythagoras through to Euclid and Archimedes, they used letters 
They never separated sound from number. Now you can, you can say, oh, it was still a primitive stage of development, human mind then. You could say that if you want to, and some people do. But what it also meant was that every single word, and this is the word for oneness used by Plato, every single word had a numerical value. And this has a very remarkable, monas, one, oneness, has a very remarkable numerical, m equals 40. If they wanted to write mathematics, they wrote in letters, the Greeks. M is 40, O equals 70, the value of 70, N equals 50, A, the first letter is, is, is 1, and S, or sigma, is 200. You put that together and you get 361. How many degrees are in that? 360. 360. And there is one circle. What is 361? But it's 19 times 19. Now, I've spoken to students about the number 19 before, and it's a subject of a complete lecture in itself. 19 are the number of years that pass where the moon and the sun come back into exact position. In other words, the full moon will be on the 1st of January in one year. 19 years later, it will be a full moon on the 1st of January. The sun and the moon actually do not catch each other up until 19 years have passed. Now, you say, oh, this is a complete and utter coincidence, uh, and fine. But um, I'm just putting those facts in front of you. And as I say, it's a 10 hours lecture, so I'm out to do it. Next one here. <laughs> Now, the important thing is that Plato talks about the birth of the physical universe, but he says we mustn't make the mistake, and this is what's slightly above my slide here, we mustn't make the mistake of thinking that the body came into existence before the soul. Soul is first, and she is the mistress of all of creation. So other people have accused Plato of being, um, I'm sure, in the modern world, a, a great um, male chauvinist and everything else like that, but he considers that the soul which rules the whole of existence and creation is feminine and is the mistress of it. He says so in the battle. And we see herself here. The point is that he says that from the centre of the sphere of physical creation to its extremity and enveloping its extremities is the soul, is the psyche, which is feminine. And then he says what's important is the soul herself is invisible, exactly like, like, like fire and air. But partakes of reason and harmony. These are the qualities. In other words, these are the relationships which make physical things able to relate to each other. She is the best of things intelligible and ever existing. The best of things generated. She is a compound, and this is very interesting indeed because another gross mistake people make, and they go on making it, talking about Plato as being a dualist. But if you understand Plato from the point of what he's saying here, he's anything but a dualist. He's saying that creation cannot come into existence until two things which are apparently opposite are put together by a third, which is being. So what he says, and this is this is really um, drives one into these other considerations of four levels of meaning. Sameness, otherness, and being were put together by the creating intelligence, the demiurgos, the divine craftsman, or craftswoman, if you like, put together. Now we are we have evoked then something like a physical substance, like ice cream or something, of which portions are going to be taken. But the, 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 what we're talking about are actually things which don't have any body. And therefore, what Plato's saying, in a sense, is that if we, when we're dealing with words, when we're dealing with arguments, ultimately, what we're saying here is that this is the paradox. The word paradox sums this up. In fact, he wrote a whole dialogue putting forward the fact that human reason must be taken to its limits, and after that, we have to accept that two things can be true at the same time, which appear to be opposite. So it's a great difficulty the creating being, the divine craftsman, having been given the permission by the highest God 
to make the creations, he pushed together three things, a triad of things are necessary. Next one here. <coughs> and let me say, um, mixed them, meaning these three, and had made of them one out of three straightway. He began to distribute the whole thereof into so many portions. He starts now talking about portions, and of course it's good to remember the word proportion is to do with relationships between portions. And then he sets up this, which next slide here will demonstrate how that is usually drawn. That's how he drew it. First, to one portion from the whole. Then he took a portion double of this. Then he took a portion half as much again as the second portion. That is three times as much as the first. Then he took a portion, a fourth portion, which was twice as much as the second. Now, what's interesting is the way he describes these numbers are all in different languages. He's not just saying there's one, there's two, there's three, there's four. He's actually using some very interesting things in here, which, again, make us realize we've got to interpret. The fifth is three times as much as the third. That's three times as much as the third. The sixth is eight times as much as the first. And the seventh, 27 times as much as the first. He doesn't say this is three times that. He said that's 27 times that. Now, you could just say he's having fun with words, he's just playing around, or you could say, well, these, all this is food for study. Now, this is usually put into this form. I've added some pieces in here because of what I'm about to do. It's usually called the lambda. That is the letter L in the, in the, in the Greek alphabet. That is, they're usually set in this format. And it must have been a convention which was known... Aristotle talks about this being in a lambda. So, and Aristotle was his biology research student for 18 years, if anybody wants to know who Aristotle was. Also a very brilliant mind, I have to say. But um, it's good to remember that, that, that Aristotle was a student of Plato's. The only problem was that Aristotle didn't learn how to put his ego down. But uh, I mustn't show my prejudices, they're really showing now. Um, and so here we have this, and what I've done is say... For every Pythagorean reading this and knowing that said this, knows there are three things that, that, that Plato did not put in. Because what we have here is the decad or the tetractis of the Pythagoreans. There are three positions missing. So it's very simple. In fact, it was, it was published by Theon of Smyrna later on, not too much later on, um, what those three were. Here we go. What are those three numbers which are missing? I beg your pardon. First of all, this is a quotation of Philolaus. Philolaus was one of Pythagorean students. And some people have actually suggested, some of the authors, classical authors, suggested that Plato went to um, Italy and bought <coughs> from the parents of Philolaus the, a lot of the Platonic doctrines. In fact, some have even gone as far as to say that he bought the uh, manuscript of, of which he wrote the Timaeus from. People are always trying to take things away from people. So, here we have um, Philolaus saying, one must study the activity of the essence of number in accordance with the power existing in the decad. Decad means tennis. What is the decad, which is great, complete, all-achieving, and the original divine and human life, its leader. It's an amazing claim, and this is the decad. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It's one, plus two, plus three, plus four. That's why it's called a tetractus, because it's based on four each side of the triangle is based on four. So what, when questioned about it, one of the, one of the commentaries from Pythagoras was, when you, he, you only need to count to four, and you've got everything. Because the Pythagoreans taught, as Plato taught, that, um, we need to keep that door open, actually, a little bit, um, that numbers were complete at ten. 
It's good to have that door open a little bit too. We find it in Right, next one here will show what the infill numbers are. Now, what's behind this as well are all the possible relationships between each point and the other points. That's what's hiding underneath here. But here are the missing figures. And what's fascinating is that in the most ancient Chinese tradition, the ancient Judaic tradition, and the ancient Christian tradition, and the ancient Islamic tradition, creation took place in how many days? Thank you. <laughs> we, were, we were hanging around and resting on the seventh. But um, we have to be careful that when we say that as well, because um, many Islamic commentators actually point out that they're not called days exactly in the Quran, they're called intervals. But what's interesting, the most central figure here is that figure of creation, the number of, which is related to creation, which is six. And we have 12 here and 18 here. We'll come back to this again. Now, this is a very simple piece of geometry. We'll come back to it two or three times, but I just wanted to point out that what... Plato is saying in Timaeus is the soul is constructed of relationships, numerical proportional relationships, not solid, tangible things. Although he talks about cutting off portions as if we've, say, got a strip of chewing gum or ice cream or something, but these are portions. And he did not talk about these. But they are all to be thought of, the soul is to be thought of as being a harmonia, to be actually harmoniously related like music is. And music was considered to be one of the most fundamental ways of evoking consciousness in the soul in the Greek tradition. And of course, because of that, certain modes were actually forbidden. Certain scales to be used were forbidden. It's now called heavy metal, I think. Yes. <laughs> to get an idea of what those musical proportions are, there are three perfect, perfect relationships in whole numbers in musical proportions. One is the fifth, that is the relationship of two to three. And when he described three, he described it as being half again more than two. He actually, so there's a musical fifth in the relationship between two and three. If you stretch a string and divide it into five portions, damp it off at the second portion and pluck those two strings, they sound perfect to the ear. And it's called a musical fifth. Between four and six is a musical fifth. Between six and nine is a musical because these are all the same proportions as that. That's a musical fifth, that's a musical fifth, that's a musical fifth. Now, the other perfect musical ratio is the fourth, and that is the relation of three to four. Three to four. So, going through this angle here, we have a fourth between three and four, between six and eight, and between nine and twelve. We only have three fourths, but we have a great number of fifths. And the octave is the other perfect, perfect um, musical sound, and that is always taking a stretch string, we, we tune it to C, and we damp it halfway, and pluck it, we'll pluck it, and it'll sound C exactly an octave higher to the ear. So the octaves are on this diagonal here. There are twice, there's two to one, 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 two to one. There are that many octaves in that system. Now, when in the Timaeus he says we set things out this way, we get these to remember, by putting these in we can see all those relationships, and many other, a bigger one, one more, and that is the interval, more or less, because this is very important, and, and and Timaeus doesn't avoid it, more or less the interval between the notes of a diatonic scale, the seven notes, the proportion between them is eight to seven. So what's called a tone is that. Angle through that, there's one example of the tone in there as well. That is the, dis the proportion between two adjacent notes in the octave. Now what um, Peter says, when, when these portions were done, the creator then filled in two intervals, two proportional intervals. This is what's called, a, these are geometric progressions. The top proportion, the highest proportion, the most revered proportion in the universe, 
was the geometric proportion. And there are two other proportion systems which Plato says were necessary, and that is the, what's called the harmonic and the arithmetic. Harmonic and arithmetic means between these two numbers. This is quite specialised, and don't worry um, if it isn't your language. But I'll, I'll just demonstrate it here. Next one, yeah. Remember that six in the middle, that's really very important. But to understand what a harmonic mean is, between three and four, between three and six, I beg your pardon, four is the harmonic mean. So by using the same diagram, we can say, if we have those two numbers, what is the harmonic mean? It's four. If we have these two numbers, what is the harmonic mean? It's eight. If we have these two numbers, what's the harmonic mean? It's 12. So we have three examples of harmonic means to learn from or to be taught from. So the arithmetic mean, Next one here. The arithmetic mean is using it a different way. Between 2 and 4, the arithmetic mean is 3. Between 4 and 8, the arithmetic mean is 6. Between 6 and 12, the arithmetic mean is 9. Now that's just to give you an idea of the proportion between each of these major intervals. Now, here is a very interesting thing, because if we actually do that literally, we suddenly find we've got fractions in here. And that's really quite awkward. And the secret is this. What we have to do is we have to transpose this up to there and multiply everything in here by 6. And by doing that, we can get whole numbers all the way down to the first basic set. And what happens is we actually create 19 intervals. Here it is. Next one here. Um, having said that, it must be on that screen. There it is. Let's say before, we've, we've transposed 6 up to 1. That means we have to multiply 3 by 6, we have to multiply 9 by 6, and we have to multiply 27 by 6. By multiplying 6 by 6, we get its square, which is 36. We multiply 2 by 6, 4 by 6, and 8 by 6. Now, what it means is the harmonic mean between 6 and 8 is 9. The arithmetic mean between 6 and 18 is 12. I'll say it again. The harmonic mean between 6 and 18 is 9. The arithmetic mean between 6 and 18 is 12. Now, if anybody wants the reference for this, it's, it's in a little book which is for sale outside. This is where the commercial comes in, folks. And we say, ah, he's talking about all these things in the cloud, but really selling books, and it's right. I am. Um, this is part of an introductory of many different traditions, particularly the ancient Greek and, and Christian traditions. Um, in that book, Dimensions of Paradise, many of these numbers keep coming up. They're not least of which, what is interesting is, whatever else you may know about Vitruvius, he says the most amazing little slot in Vitruvius, who's considered to be a very unmystical sort of a, uh, architect, who writes very practically. But he talks about Pythagoras in Vitruvius, and he says, Vitruvius and those who followed his sect, which means, of course, he's being cautious not to be a Pythagorean himself, decided to write their rules in cube fashion in their volumes and fixed upon a cube of 216 lines. And they thought that not more than three cubes should be in one treatise or one book. And that's a very, very strange thing for the modern mind to come across. What, what could that possibly mean? Well, there are many people who know what that means in terms of poetry and literature and so forth. That is working on, on harmonic numbers of, of lines and standards <coughs> and so forth. But what's fascinating about this, 216, is if we look at this figure again, which I did, I was very amused to discover something. This is really quite an aside and don't worry, but if you're, into, if you're a number cruncher, as they say in America, you might like it. Next one here. If we take these triads, that is 1, 18, and 12, 8, 3, and 9, 27, 2, and 4, these are triangles which go right through. We multiply that set of three 
18 times 1 times 12 becomes 216, as the says. If we multiply 9 by 3 by 8, it becomes 216. If we multiply 2 by 4 by 27, it becomes 216. So those who, again, re reading Vitruvius, reading the, the hidden language in Vitruvius, we come up with this. Now, what, what could that mean? Well, what was interesting was one of the Renaissance architects, Cesarino, this one here, I think it is, took this and put it into three dimensions and said, this is the mystical cube of creation. It is actually six intervals by six intervals. Therefore, it is a solid cube containing 216 little baby cubes. And from those, we could take whole number of proportions, which are the most harmonic rooms to design into your architecture. Now, that was the same basic theory, although none of this was explained in any exterior verbal terms, but I'm suggesting it. The, 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 the fundamental basis behind Palladio, for instance, next one here, who designed his architecture using seven rooms. And those seven rooms are musical fifth proportion, musical fourth proportion, square root of two proportion, that which is nearest to the golden mean, five to three proportion, a perfect square, a perfect circle, and an octave, double square. Now these are allusions to the seven first numbers of the platonic Timaean diagram. But we have still very much in modern Western attitude towards knowledge is if it's not published, it couldn't be true. Which is very sad. Those the scholars have taken over, the, the, the several minds taken over. Said, well, if, well, it doesn't need too much intelligence to know. If, if Vitruvius had said in his treatise that a young architect and architect in training must study philosophy, you just have to ask yourself, who are the philosophers he, he, he could advocate? Of course, top would be Plato and Plato's second Aristotle. Therefore, Cesarino is interpreting from that 216 clue of Vitruvius, this is what he meant, by harmonious volumes in which the human soul, not just the body, can live. And Palladio never, ever would dream of having a square ceiling. These are the plans, by the way, of the, build, of the room, and that is the, the wall, the room coming up. So this would fold up like this. And, and so the wall, and he'll, you'll see he would never dream. The word ceiling, meaning heaven, comes from the same root as heaven in modern language, meaning that the curved form would be appropriate for the ceiling. And that, in a room like this, the residue of it is the little dentils going around. And of course, for those who missed the point, the rosette in the middle is, in this room, Luna. And the guy speaking must be a lunatic then. No, the reason why it's Luna is just count the petals. And then you begin to get into the classical language. Just begin to move into the classical language. So you'll find there are 28 petals on that, or there are 14 or a 7. In other words, there's going to be a multiple of 7. I'm suddenly thinking it could be 28, it's probably 14. Somebody will count and they'll say, no, it's 15, so keep Christian and then go out the door and finish his lecture. Right, next one over there. This is the book in which that information I've just been talking about is in, and I think we've got some copies outside that people want. To, to study it, and more can be got. It's really an extremely good little book, and I feel very honoured to be allowed to, to write in it. Uh, but what I did was I explained some of the things behind. This is the tetractus here, where each point in these ten is emanating a tenfold set of rings. And that's the, the rather interesting patterns you get. Next one here. Now this... Okay, some people have said, and for many years they've said, how ridiculous, how could the world possibly be put together with triangles, which is what Plato talks about later on, which is the next thing we get on to. How could the physical world be put together with triangles? Well, I happened to be in New York on August the 26th, in 1986, 
had this rather beautiful photograph was published in the New York Times, and it said, if somebody would be very kind of duck their head, that man there, the first photograph of atoms. Roundish, and then I suddenly scratched my head, roundish bright spots, and their bonds, bright tether-like filaments that hold the atoms in place. Well, the camera doesn't lie, I was told when I was a kid. <laughs> Now, the other thing which is very important, I touched on this earlier, was the pretty remarkable, to say the least, concept that the Greek mind came up with, and I said also it simultaneously came up in the philosopher in India, one in China, was the idea that um, we have um, something which is making up physical matter out of something which is unseeable in its smallness. And in this, this is another slice out of the Timaeus, it's about 57D, if you want to reference, but either structure did not originally produce a triangle of one size only. This is, in other words, translation is triangle. Very, very interesting, and that bothered me a lot, because triangle then becomes something which is pretty concrete. But in fact, in the Greek, it's trigon. Trigon. And that actually means threeness, or three generating points. The word gon, Greek word, which is the root of the word gonads, and the root of the root of the word generation or genesis that, and good knowledge no doubt as well don't believe anything that people say it's very dangerous point. Um, but the point being that, that it's quite good to remember when we translate these words what, and I'm going to show you that a little bit later on how dangerous it all is but hence when they are mingled with themselves and with one another there is endless variety of them in other words if he says and I, when I was a student I was told how ridiculous Plato was he said a pyramid was fire the pyramid of fire is ridiculous, but what actually Plato said was that there's endless variety of ways in which these triangles go together, and those would arrive at the probable truth of nature or duty to consider. And again, he's only insisting on considering this as a, a way of looking at the natural world. Now, what's interesting is the contemporary theory about matter is it's based on a quark. And I'm sure some in the room knows far more about quarks than I do, and maybe they'll just tell me what a quark is made up of. <coughs> It's very threatening when you ask a question you're sitting in an audience. You pretend you're not there. Okay? I'll put my foot in it by saying, a quark is made of upness, downness, and strangeness. Now, if you count upness and downness and strangeness, you'll find it's three. A quark is made up of three qualities, and the qualities which the modern physical scientists say, <coughs> the quark, which is the nearest and ultimate building block of the physical world, is upness, downness, and strangeness. Interesting thing about that is upness and downness are the spindle of an axis. The strangeness is that which deviates from this axis, the spindle. And those who are Platonic scholars know the fates wove on a spindle, the fate of each individual person and so forth. Next one here. <coughs> there it is, the quark. U standing for upness, D standing for downness, S standing for strangeness. The proton is made of two upnesses and one downness. That's the quark of becoming a proton. The neutron is one upness and two downnesses. So the second set using... Uh, triads in here, we come to six and the resting point of seven, which has two qualities. And finally, the whole pattern of modern physics is based on the quarks making this pattern up. Where have we seen that before just now? Next one here. Now, one very bright modern writer on physics has said, maybe we're looking at the structure of the human mind. Of course, that's much too dangerous for most people, particularly physicists. They get very upset because they're quite sure they're looking at a microscope and they're actually looking at something physical. Nevertheless, this is in great detail how one of the latest modern, not the latest, 
many more latest than this, but one of the theories of, of the way in which the, the elementary particles in the nucleus of an atom, how they're structured. They have these Greek names. It's always nice to go back to the Greek names. And that is triple atlas. That's double atlas and a downless. That's an atlas and a stranger. Two atlas and a stranger. And it gives this pattern of 10. And not only that, the way the isospin charge is looked through it is the same way that I showed how the proportions were read on the tetractors. And the strangeness charge, again, is seen that way. All total coincidence, no doubt. <laughs> Only a twit like Critchlow would draw these things up and put them to an audience. But nevertheless, um, we do have to consider one thing. It's strange how these forms occur. And I'm not going to make any more claims than that, as Timaeus wouldn't either. We'll just say these are things to consider. Next one here. Now, the other thing I want to do is to jump to another tradition completely, because we've seen how Plato talked about the triangle being ultimate. Here we have the Hasa Mandara, which is a key diagram of a total cosmology of Buddhism, but, as Buddhism will have it, in this iconic form. But what one mustn't miss, a very important point about this iconic form, and that is the geometry of the backgrounds of each of them is different, and they represent the different worlds. And this is, this is of course, the final incarnation where Buddha reached Buddhahood, and the rest are the supporting incarnations that he had to go through to get to his Buddhahood. But what's interesting is each side of this Mandara, or Mandala, represents the four possible modes of consciousness. And this one above is the mode of knowledge. And that which you see lurking in there, next one here is the enlargement of that piece of the mandara, this is only a little bit of it anyway, is called, that image is called the all-knowledge of the Buddhas. And what do we have? We have exalted the equilateral triangle. Of course, it's drawn four times. It's quite interesting. One, two, three, four, five times. In fact, there are two little squares and a major number of fiery circles. So if one thinks that Plato was unique in talking about the origin or the, um, the importance of the triangle to human consciousness or, or trying to interpret the beginning of the universe, then certainly there is evidence that Buddhism does too. Quite strong evidence. Next one here. And again, this is an argument which a person who wrote this particular book, a modern scholar of Plato called Blastos was using this quote in, in the Timaeus to ridicule Plato a little bit, but he said, the cosmos must be spherical. Why so? Because the sphere is the most homogeneous shape there is. It's the most uh, perfectly whole and holding together shape there is. And the homogeneous, says Plato, is 10,000 times better than the unhomogeneous. That's what the rest of the quote is. And of course, Blastos takes that and says, that's not logic, Plato. You can't do that. And Plato is arguing from a different part of himself and, or Timaeus is, one might say, and again, he keeps insisting, I'm putting this forward as a probable theory. Please consider it. Now I'm going to jump to something I showed in my last lecture. Next one over here. And that is the earliest occurrence of the Platonic forms occurred 2,000 years before Plato was alive. This is why I feel confident to talk about the oral tradition being written down by Plato maybe 2,000 years later. And here are spheres being made by so-called grunting, woad-painted primitives in Scotland who only just, only just moved out of being apes. Um, um, sorry, this, this is sort of the old model. Um, they were actually taking the hardest stone they could find and making these um, balls, which are just about big enough to hold in your hand. And, of course, these have been dug up, a few hundred of them have been dug up in Scotland, and nobody knows exactly why they made them. Of course, you always get a military theorist. It's because they're throwing at each other, because they like each other. That's the bottom line, I think. Or their tokens for how much they are the bank manager. I don't know. Anyway, the point is that here are these spheres. We've got into the make spheres, which is part of what Plato says is the most important shape to contemplate and the holding of it in your hand. What, what, what is the 
What does a royalty hold in their hands in this country to become royalty? That is when they become crowned. They hold an orb in one hand, they hold the proportional rod, traditional proportional rod in the other. Next one here. And this is, to me, the most amazing forms that I found there because of my own... Um, I was forced into discovering this particular form. It's actually called a truncated tetrahedron. It's got four bumps and four little bumps, and they're, they're quite rare. This one has got um, six bumps, so it could be a cube, it could be an octahedron. But this is now the latest model that's been put forward by physics to explain the nucleus of certain atoms. I decided not to go into all that tonight because it's just a little bit too obscure, but on this side, what I want to say was, here is evidence, next one here, these are photographs of objects which are to be found in the museum in Edinburgh with no explanation as to what they are, so I asked if I could photograph them, then I asked if I could put tapes on them to show the symmetry, and these are the ways in which we are taught the platonic figures in modern mathematics or at school, and these are the versions made by people who didn't have writing, let alone didn't have numbers to write, they didn't have writing to write, and nobody knows if they could even record language. But what they did record was these most sophisticated of all the symmetries. The icosahedron, the dodecahedron, the octahedron, the tetrahedron, and the cube. Two cubes here, there's a sort of Brancusi type cube here, and there's another kind of cube there. And these are quite incredible because they're, they're representing these forms without landing up with, with sharp corners. They're both spherical and differentiated at the same time. That's what's so amazing about these objects. And, and of course, no archaeologists come up with any theory as to why they should have been doing it. So they really shouldn't be able to think like this at this point, because they're still, as I say, because Darwin had told them so, they're still emerging from monkeys. They shouldn't be able to think like that. But they did, and this is 2,000 years before the Platonic solids were first written about by Plato. And here they all are. The next one here. As a, this, a bit of indulgence by me, forgive me, I'm just going to go through it quite quickly. It's very, very interesting to remember that not only water, water behaves completely irrationally at this size. Completely irrationally. Fancy water gathering itself together. What does water normally do? It just spreads all over the place, or any liquid. But given a small enough dew drop, the thing called surface tension makes it try to regain a sphere. It's absolutely beautiful. But it's a symbol. I'm using it as a metaphor that everything which is alive is born out of the atom or genesis of a cell. And we, as human beings, were in our most perfect form, as Plato would have said, and maybe these people in their own philosophical way would have said, when we were first conceived. Conception took place when everybody in this room was a perfect sphere. Some of them say, no, I wasn't perfect. My mother's having trouble at the time. But nevertheless, your mother had a giant sphere as her contribution, and your father had a little tiny wiggling thing, or the sperm, who actually made that connection, which then triggered a whole incarnation. It's, it's totally miraculous. And of course, the sperm was at the point of dying when it did it. It's another interesting thing. Both cells are often at the point of, of, of expiring. So if we take that as being a symbol of, of life, again, the origin of life, and, and, and multicellular things which life becomes, Watching the pattern of how we, from a single cell, became differentiated in itself is profoundly interesting. From the Platonic point of view of what did Plato mean by remembrance? Remembrance. Putting the members back together again. Remembrance is the op opposite to dismembering. Modern mind is brilliant at dismembering everything through theories. Next one here. That is the way in which a frog develops. As we know, a frog is a square and a cube. This is the way a human being develops, and from being a point to a line, goes through a triangular stage, and then becomes a tetrahedron. 
There, there you are. That is, that's our first experience. That's our second experience. I'm talking now of everybody in the room. Our third experience, because that's the definition of life according to modern biology. Our third experience was to be in triangular form. That's a transition between here and here. And our fourth experience was to be the first platonic figure. And remarkably like the way in which the Neolithic people were expressing it. Next one here. This is the genesis of the frog. Um, as I say, it's important to remember from a point to a line, there's a triangular stage. The frog goes into a square here, but we go into spiral cleavage and we are a tetrahedron at this stage. And therefore, if you, this becomes an icosahedron and a dodecahedron can be seen in here if you like. When we get to 60, profoundly important number, when we get to 60, we measure all space and time in 60s, then it cannot take anymore. Sorry, somebody say something? Be coughed. Can't take any more, and it has to buckle. This is called invagination. And by buckling, this is, this is the mushroom stage of our existence. We move into the vegetative, vegetative state. After that, we move into the animal state, and then we become born as humans. But up to here, in 60, when the last four go in, 64, then it has to buckle. It's just the law of geometry. And that buckling is called invagination, and the three-body tissues are, are, are given rise to, which give rise to the guts, the bones, and the nervous system, the three basic areas of the divisions in the body. So we go through an evolution, if you like, from being unity through to differentiation, passing through the platonic figures. It's part of our deepest experience, if, if one can call that experience. And who, who, who's really going to be done back and say it's not experience? What kind of experience is goodness knows? I happen to have a son who did a doctoral degree in embryology. And the one thing that is the biggest mystery of embryology is how do cells know what to be? How do cells know to be a fingernail or a brain or an eye when there's no nervous system yet? Big question. Next one. So again, this is plain to say when many of them are clicked together, talking about the basic um, Particles that make up matter, the aggregate numbers click together, the aggregates are seen, and the ratios of their numbers, motions, and other properties everywhere, God, as far as necessity allowed, gave consent, had exactly perfected and harmonized in due proportion. What he's saying is that whatever happened in the way in which creation is put together, it was always harmonized and in due proportion. This is, this is where the, the respect for proportion. Has, uh, has, has permeated the whole of the Western world and the different revelations in the Western world. Now, this is a very interesting jump that Plato makes. He says, okay, we're going to show you how earth, air, fire, and water became bodily, because they've got to be bodily, otherwise we can't touch, taste, and smell, and heal them. So he said, this is the most beautiful triangle. But then he said, if somebody finds a more beautiful one, the victory's theirs, they're not an enemy, good luck to them, and they'd have to be a friend of God to find one anyway. So here he takes half the equilateral triangle, half the equilateral triangle, and says this is the fairest or the most beautiful triangle. The one which we maintain to be the most beautiful of all the many triangles, and we need not speak of others, is that which the double forms a third triangle, which is equilateral. Two of them form an equilateral triangle. And having a square on the longer side equal to three times that of the lesser side. Well, he's talking about the two sides where the right angle is here. That is, the square on this side is one, the square on that side is 3, because this distance is a transcendental. I use the word transcendental. It's a transcendental number, root 3. And the square on that side is 4, because that distance is 2, 1, that's an octave relationship, and the square root of 3. Now, many moderns have commentated on the classics and said they were intolerant of, 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 of irrationals. And they call something like root 3 an irrational. 
Well, how would Plato possibly have put forward the first two triangles, most elementary two triangles on which the universe is built, both of them have irrationals built in, if, it, if anything irrational. I would prefer it to be called a transrational or a transcendental number. You cannot find the number which multiplied by itself becomes three. You can't find a finish to the progression of it. Next one here. Let's just have a look at that in physical form. There it is. Equilateral triangle, half of it, two side, one bottom, and root three base. But Plato said that is not how the first solid was made up. Next one here. He said it needs to have six of them. Remember the number six and the importance of the number six. It had to be six of them. That is the same triangle as that one. Um, one, two, three, four, five, six. And again, this distance is root three. So what I've done is I've moved this distance outside here. And what I'm saying is, if this is made up of two halves, we can take this half and swing it up here, and we've got a rectangle. So look at that rectangle. There's the rectangle. The diagonal of that rectangle will make an equilateral triangle there and an equilateral triangle there. Next one here. And now, now we can see what the content of that is, if you like. There's an equilateral triangle there, an equilateral triangle there. Here we have the six now arranged as a rectangle. Now, this, as Plato said, was the most beautiful triangle. As Vitruvius said, we must study our philosophers. Then we must begin to get a sense of what the Renaissance architects did with this. Next one here, or why they took it so seriously. And this has all the full authority of Bannister Fletcher behind it. That's not many people in the audience know who Bannister Fletcher is these days. But the baptistry at Pisa is based precisely on that rectangle. Here is the basic equilateral triangle, giving us this break point here. The cone, which is meant to have these, and does have, these magical acoustic qualities, is simply a triangle which goes to the top of In other words, if I took a triangle from here to that point and back down again, that gives me this cone, this acoustic cone here. Now, what's interesting, the portions go up and beyond the building, and some people don't like that to happen, but here is the indication of why. So we find that there's an equilateral triangle down here determining the proportions. There's equally one above. And the coincidence of the big triangle coming, the very tall triangle coming down, the very tall triangle going up, they cross over each other at the halfway point again here. Circle, again, which is very much due to the acoustics, determines the width inside here and where this breaks here and so forth. Just a small taste of not proportion for any sentimental reasons, not proportion for any doctrinal reasons, but proportion because it does actually orchestrate sound. And of course, sound in the Platonic system is the soul. The soul of a building is the sound that it emits. Next one here. Or is related to it. So these are the different kinds of fire. This kind of one made of eight <coughs> seed triangles, one made of 24 seed triangles, one made of 32 seed triangles. This is the way in which different kinds of fire, flame, light, and embers, as Plato calls them, all a highly speculative way of looking at fire. Next one here. Now the other thing is that Plato used two words for these little figures, these little three-dimensional figures, the first one being the tetrahedron. And he talks about the molecule of fire as being both an element, that is a stoicha, and a seed, a sperma. And the reason being that two other philosophers, or two other groups of philosophy at the time of Plato were claiming both one anaxagoras, an an using the term seeds, or sperma, 
for the ultimate particles of matter in this physical system. And the atomists, that is Democritus and the others, use the word stoicia. I can't pronounce it particularly, stoicia, which means a letter, so that you make alphabets up. You have a fundamental letter and you make sentences and treaties out of it. They're both metaphors for how you build up from the first figures. Next one here. These are the two triangles which Plato says that matter is made out of. Earth is made out of this one. And it's not the most beautiful one to him. And the interesting thing is, because it has this immense <coughs> dualism about it, has two angles the same, has two sides the same, and in fact, simply half a square. <coughs> but this is the most beautiful one, and I would suggest one of the reasons being it is triadic. It has three different sides, has three different angles, 30 degrees, 60 degrees, and 90 degrees. That is the half equilateral triangle again. So these two, this one built up earth, this one built up fire, air, and water. All totally strange if you take them literally. But if you then take the idea that they are metaphors for triadicity, the building up of, of materiality through triadicity, then it's perfectly respectable. Modern physics. Next one. This is the other triangle. It's one this way and the square root of two that way. But you said that's not how we should build the cube up. Next one here. We need to divide that into its full symmetry. That's one way of doing it. And then the next one, this one here, is the complete way of doing it. So, in fact, it's made up of eight, an octave, if you like. The square has to have eight of these little particles to make one side of a cube of Earth, or a cube of a solid state. Next one here. And this is how the molecule of fire was first built up, the molecule of air was first built up, the molecule of water was first built up, and the molecule of air, Earth. So these three are all built up the same triangle, only many of them. That is that little triangle there, and Earth alone built out of this one. But, and this is where a lot of people have speculated, and not at all surprisingly, what about the fifth one? This is not the same. And, and some people say, oh, Plato didn't write about that one deliberately, because he knew it wasn't the same, and upset all his theory. But sure enough, it is the third one again. At the planar level, you have to have there's, there's three again there, triad, and again there are three different triangles to make up the set. These are the set of the only possible regular figures made out of regular shapes in mathematics, depending on how you define regularity. Okay, so we have water, air, fire, and earth, and this one people have called ether. In fact, some people in the room are doing a project at Salisbury Cathedral. There's a very beautiful example of this one carved in stone. The Salisbury Cathedral, have you noticed it yet? No, I shall tell you where to hunt for it. Where is it? Aha, I knew somebody would say that. So we've got eager students here. When you're facing, like I am at the moment, when you're facing the altar, the last crossing before you get into the nave again for the high altar, on the left-hand side is an Elizabethan tomb to a nobleman. And the crowning thing on top of that tomb is a sphere on which a barb is carved a dodecahedron, which you can see right through. This figure is carved. I'll show you a slide in a minute. Next one here. Just en passant, this, which is water, and we know that water is the vehicle of life, and we know that the first living thing in modern biological theory is the virus. It happened to be that the vast majority of viruses, and this is the electron micrograph they took to find out, the vast majority of viruses are icosahedral. Nice coincidence. A virus can be dead, crystalline, for apparently millions of years. It can then Given it comes the right contact of liquidity and warmth, it will behave like a living thing. So it is the bridge between life and non-life. It happens to be that shape. 
The majority of them, not all of them. Next one here. Now this is where the large mystery comes, and I'm nearly finishing this lecture. I didn't realise quite how much I'm subjected. I, I, I do it every time. I apologise. This word here has defeated all scholars. Diazographon. And how it's defeated all scholars is very amusing indeed, because it is actually what Plato says the fifth solid is. But nobody's really been able to interpret it, which is lovely. Very fun. Next one here. Well, they have, they have, but... Here it is. Dia, dia, zo, graphon. Dia means across, zo means zo, life, living, and graphon means graphic to draw, to make image. So the fifth one is something to do with, with going around or so forth, and it's got to do with life, and it's got to do with image of your drawing. And so what are the translators made of it? Here's the first two translators making of it. There was yet a fifth combination which God used in the delineation of the universe with figures of animals. That's a pretty rich translation out of that word, but nevertheless, there it is. This is a struggle. Another translator, this is an early one, Jarrett, a bit later, Barry came up, came up with it. And seeing that there still remained one other compound figure, the fifth, God used it up for the universe in his decoration thereof. No mention of animals at all. The animals have gone. But decoration is there. Because he's using the word graphon to be, to be his key thing. Next one here. Later still, most, uh, most recent one by Lee. There still remained a fifth construction which God used to arrange the constellations of the whole heaven. Cornford, which I would recommend to everybody, Plato's Universe by Cornford, is the best book that I would recommend if you really want to get into the mass. He says, there still remained one construction, the fifth, and God used it for the whole, making a pattern of animal figures thereon. Pretty good in a way, and, but all of them are touching on the fact that they believe that Plato was talking about the zodiacal belt, which is the, the um, heavenly meridian which the Earth turns round and has on it the constellations against which we measure time, against which we measure the planets' movements. So with this, I just wanted to show you these because it demonstrates the, the, the huge difficulty of making a literal translation from the Greek into another language. And how, in a sense, how speculative it is. And so one has to be so careful and look for the depth within the depth. Next one here. So let's look at that fifth one. There it is in Salisbury Cathedral, taken with a telescopic lens. And if you have a telescopic lens, you're lucky enough to be able to read what the man has almost hidden on it. Because if you walk up to this, this monument quite close to you'll never read the fact he's actually using Platonic language here. Of course, in Elizabethan times, there's a whole rebirth, as Francis Yates has written her books about, whole rebirth of Platonic philosophy and meaning, hence the Globe Theatre and everything else like that. There is a dodecahedron beautiful card. That's the crowning figure on this grave, or this tomb, I should say, of this noble man. On the left-hand side, before you get to the final uh, part of the nave to go to the altar. So if he goes back to Salisbury, you'll find this. You'll find other solids carved in that as well. But nice, like Cosmohedon's carved in too. Next one here. <coughs> so here's the solid. And this school of thought, and um, don't worry if you can't speak German, just take a careful note of the title. I can't even read it myself. But Rudolf Steiner's group decided to take this figure and try to find out what Plato could have been talking about by trying to put the constellations on it. Well, the first thing that you discover is, and that's a good clue, is that there are 12 of these pentagonal faces, and there are 12 signs to the zodiac. Why the 12 signs? Because the sun and the moon, by working together, divide the heavens into 12. That is, there's a new moon every one-twelfth of the period of the sun, which is one whole year. The moon divides the sun rhythm into 12, and that's what makes up our months. 
So here we have 12 faces, and that's the reason. But Munoz uh, Nijmegen rather cleverly divided the dodecahedron by splitting the faces like this. Very, very interesting. And therefore they unfolded it, and here's what they came to. So there are whole pentagons, and there are split pentagons. And so here is from Pisces, a big apartment should really start with Aries, from Aries going through Taurus to Gemini, to Cancer, to Leo, to Virgo, and so on, through Sagittarius, Capricorn, and settled back to Pisces again. That was one solution that the Buddha started to And this particular figure they did had a totally practical um, reason for doing what they did. They actually turned this figure through water and clarified it and depolluted water with it. <laughs> Basically, they took it through a lake and it managed to send a lot of particles to the bottom. That's another story. You just get that book if you want to find out. But their solution, again, totally speculative, is how the 12 zodiacal signs could be seen to flow as the sun flows through the heavens can be unfolded like that. Who knows? Next one. What is certain is that if we take the pentagon with its wonderful golden mean properties, which, which uh, many have believed that Plato was not allowed and very promised to write about because it put too much power into people's hands who may not be morally capable of handling it. But what certainly happened was here's the third triangle. It's made of 36 degrees, 54 degrees, and 90 degrees. It's not like the other two triangles. But he doesn't describe this in any detail whatsoever. Now, what's fascinating is what he did talk about was that this figure should be thought about as being spherical. The ultimate soul, the figure of, of completeness and the wholeness, is always spherical and highly polished and one. And so, if we take this now and go on to the sphere, next one here, which is what the Neolithic people never departed from, that's what's so interesting. These Neolithic carvers of these people never departed from the sphere. They differentiated into dodecahedral, right? And I put the tapes in to demonstrate how the fire is seen and how it's felt, but they never allowed themselves to get too far from the sphere. So, next one here. There should be a bag down this one, put so, to find out how that works, if we now do what Plato suggested in the plane and do it on a sphere, and of course this triangle has to be a particular size on the sphere to work, we put the equilateral triangle on the sphere to see how the, the, the ultimate soul embraced the whole of the materiality works, then this of course has to be a particular size. So, that we put this in, we then divide it, next one here, in the way which he said it had to be divided, that is into six of itself. Then we extrapolate that six onto the whole sphere, next one here, and we find it gives us 60 of these basic triangles, 60 again, 6 times 10, 6 the number of creation, 10 the number of the decat. There are 60 of these, again, a measure of space and time, there are 60 of these that make up the whole sphere. <coughs> now, the way in which these are gained all this information is in my little book, Order in Space, and it's not, it's not anyone can possibly go through in detail at a lecture like this, because it's really quite complicated. But you can see the pattern, and what I'm going to say to you is that if we take six of these, that will give us, by extrapolation on the rest of the sphere, because as there are 60 of, uh, make a point, there, is, yes, there are 60 of these, and there are 120 because they're right and left handed. That is a right and left handed version of it, right and left handed version. There are 60 of these, and there are 60 of those. And this is what Plato talks about when he talks about the construction of the icosahedron. He talks about it being within a sphere, and he talks about the components being 120. 
60, 60. And therefore, we can take that many and we'll know if we take 6 and multiply by 20, we'll get the whole icosahedron because the icosahedron has got 20 faces. Now, if we then take this triangle from here to here to here, we get the next figure, which he said was the figure of air. And if we then take this figure from here to here to there and back again, that will divide the sphere into four equilateral, spherical equilateral triangles, which give us the fire, the tetrahedron. So suddenly, all these differentiated figures with their carved in the flat become absolutely logical as a whole. And far the most amazing thing is that it does go back to two triangles. Next one here. In as much that, there it is again. And we, are, we had the, the triangle of, that made up the cube is, is built into this as well. So let's get, move on to this one. These are the full number. Next one here. And whereas this one here is the icosahedron, there'll be 20 of those. We now find if we count 10 of these, that is the five-sided figure of the dodecahedron. Suddenly, this triangle, which in the plane was half an equilateral triangle, is now identical to that other triangle, which is 36 degrees, 54 degrees, 90 degrees. Suddenly, this triangle and the sphere accommodates both that, and the reason why Plato didn't talk about the third triangle was because it was the sphere he was talking about, and it's totally reconciled. There we have one face of the 12 possible faces of the diazographon, or the dodecahedron. Next one here. This is an example of how the octahedron and the cube work in That is a cubic face on a sphere. There's the full division. And here is the dodecahedron and the icosahedron working exactly in harmony on the sphere. So all these material forms come back to beautiful unity. One single triangle here on the sphere. Next one over here. <coughs> and myself as a young man. It's rather awful back, but it is great fun. And I just decided to put the slide in because I have done with many students put the idea at a human scale so one can actually appreciate it in a quite different way. That was when inflatables were popular, folks, and it was great fun doing it. You know, the group of students down at SX. But by doing it like this, you can actually be inside it and experience it, you can see it from outside, and it's quite nice just the metaphor and the analogy of the circulations of intelligence, as Plato calls them earlier and their relationship to our own consciousness. Next one here. And so, the last passage of the Timaeus, an outlet, we may say, our discourse concerning the universe has reached its termination. For this our cosmos has received the living creatures, both mortal and immortal, and been thereby fulfilled. It being itself a visible, living creature, embracing the living creatures, a perceptible God, made in the image of the intelligible, most great, good, and fair, and perfect in its generation even this one heaven, soul of its kind. That's the finishing words of the Timaeus. Next one here, forgive me if I can finish on a slightly lighter note. <laughs> Thank you, folks, that's it. <laughs> the prayer you all should use before giving any lecture, and that is, may I, may I not mislead. That's the only thing you can do. Have I, has anybody told me I've misled them? They yes, say yes, they yes. So I want you to give money back. But uh, I know it's a little bit heavy to, to give a lot of information like this and the kind of information that's taken me many years to gather, but I, being myself a Platonist, I very much would like to say that I've said nothing tonight which you don't already know. 
That's the basis of Platonic thesis. And it's a very, very important thesis, and that is everybody knows everything, and we just have to be reminded. And the value of that is, in any educational system, where the educational system says to the student, you have been given this knowledge, and you're beholden to me because I gave it to you, is a coercive education system. But it's an education system, and that's why Plato did it, that says, I'm only going to tell you something you already know, I'm a bit heavy, you may not clearly want to know it, <laughs> but you do already know it, and therefore it is yours by birthright. Best book that summarizes, and it's always very dangerous to summarize any great philosopher like Plato, the best book that I've come across in modern English is this one, The Platonic Doctrines of Albinus. It's a very good introduction to the whole Platonic corpus. But it's quite good to remember that Wittgenstein said that all modern philosophy are merely footnotes to Plato. And what I would just like to finish on would say that that's not to be thought of as Plato as an individual, but Plato as a divine spokesman or spokesperson for a tradition which was previously only allowed to be transmitted orally. And that's that's what my personal conclusion is. Anybody got any questions? Yes. Sorry. Yes. Um, when you talk about the uh, the virus, yes. Perhaps you've actually uh, cleared up AIDS tonight. <laughs> <laughs> because love if, uh, if, uh, if 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 with the AIDS virus, then we're not going to have. There's no possibility of getting a vaccine to catch up with the changing virus. The only way to deal with the virus is to attack it at, uh, at its uh, geometrical level. So perhaps within the harmonic of the virus, if there's a harmonic attached to that geometrical shape, mm -hmm. we hit it with the harmonic, then we can knock the virus out. Could be. Could be. It's a lovely thought. If you take a thought away like that, one of the problems is you have the responsibility to do it. Okay. But yeah, really, it's a very good thought. Super thought. Why, why did the change take place, do you think, from uh, speaking about these things and demonstrating them uh, to writing them down? Um, this is a very important question. Why did the oral tradition become written down, ever? The story is that everything in the affairs of the universe goes in cycles. And there are enlightened periods and there are very dark periods. We happen to be in a very dark period, who would, who would guess it, called the Kali Yuga. And whenever a dark period, whenever there's a descent into a dark period, the tradition is that, that the oral tradition has to be written down because darkness is a forgetting. And not only written down, but as far as I'm concerned, Chartres Cathedral is embodying some of the best and richest of Christianity. Of course, the best and richest is in the, in, in the book itself, but after that, it's in three dimensions, in colour and space and form and harmony, it's in the, in the building. So any monument can do it. The word monument meaning uh, a thing to remember, a vehicle to remember by. So whenever, whenever humanity is going to go into a dark cycle, then it is necessary to put oral teaching into writing. So it seems. That's the only solution that I've heard and that I find acceptable. The difficulty is, and I've just been writing notes in the dark doing my talk, and then you tell me I know it anyway. Yes. And I think, well, now, what, 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 you know, what am I doing? So we, you and I are in a process of reminding each other. I've been learning immense amount tonight. If I haven't learned, I always give people too much in a lecture that I ought to time I should learn. But nevertheless, um, the point is that, that I am a vehicle. I'm part of you. We are a vehicle together. If you're making notes, you'll go back and you'll find, after when you wake up tomorrow morning, certain things will come right up to the conscious field, and they are the things that really you need and, and matter to you. And also you'll find, and many people in the room will have found, quite a few things I'm talking about, they think, well, gosh, I was just about to think that myself. And that is actually the, the experience of remembering a lot of what I've said tonight should drop down like dead leaves, and you shouldn't concern yourself with it again. 
but there are things which are in an intermediary state where you take them back and you, you, you try to integrate them to make the only, only one reason for learning anything that's to make your life more whole and have more understanding to it. It's the only possible reason one could have for learning anything. If you learn something to in fact there is one more slide, can I be naughty and put it on the slide? I forgot. This is nice. Sorry. Just because it answers your question anyway. Quote from Timaeus, which I didn't think I was going to put on the screen. A person may sometimes set aside their meditations on eternal things. Well, imagine how dangerous that is, anyway. And for recreation, turn to consider the truths of generation. That means in perfect science. Which are, probable, which are probable only. They will thus gain a pleasure not to be repented of and secure for him or herself while they live a wise and moderate pastime. <laughs> that is... <laughs> Plato being ultra-generous about the dangers of going down the empirical track. To try, and, 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 and I think in one of the dialogues, why torture a piece of catgut to prove musical theory? Which, of course, is quite an extreme way of talking about it. What did he say here? You have to set aside your meditation on internal things to turn your attention. One of the most profound... They will thus gain a pleasure not to be repented of and secure for him or herself while they live a wise and moderate pastime. <laughs> that is Plato being ultra-generous about the dangers of going down the empirical track to try and, 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 and I think in one of the dialogues said why torture a piece of catgut to prove musical theory which of course is quite an extreme way of talking what did he say here you have to set aside your meditation on internal things to turn your attention one of the most profoundly moving quotes that was in Small is Beautiful was when Darwin reached a point in his life where he suddenly realised he could not listen to music anymore, he couldn't read poetry anymore, Shakespeare was giving him the nab jabs, and he said, it must be because I've been...